0: Log
1: Talk Radio The B.I.B.L.E. That's the book for me. The B.I.B.L.E. That's the book for me.
2: you I'm Melissa Cantrell on Tripletol Radio, and now the lesson, which is John MacArthur, with
3: the wondrous work of the cross.
4: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
5: Go back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and I remind you of what we read earlier in this service, Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was definitely a cross of love. There are so many facets of the cross. There are so many angles, so many perspectives regarding the death of Christ. But one that is powerful, if it's understood, is laid out for us in the portion of Scripture I read to you earlier. And it is the comparison between Adam and his impact and Christ and his impact. The reason this comparison even comes up in the book of Romans is because a question arises as Paul presents the gospel. And the question is this. When he speaks about the death of Christ being all that is necessary for our salvation, having been validated by his resurrection, the, the question that immediately follows that is how could... An act by one man have such a massive effect on so many people throughout all of human history. That's the question. The Christian gospel says Christ died for the sins of the world. How could any act that any one person did affect so many. And Paul answers that by bringing up the impact of Adam. If you look back at chapter 5 and verse 12, you read, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned what paul is saying there is that we were represented by adam and because he sinned that one sin the entire human race was impacted adam by one act impacted forever the entire human race And that is Paul's example of the fact that the act of one person can have a massive effect on many others. Adam's one sin caused all in the human race to be born into corruption and death and judgment. And as one act by one man cursed all of humanity... So one act by the Lord Jesus Christ causes all who are in him to be raised to righteousness and eternal life. All who were in Adam when Adam sin died, all who are in Christ when Christ died are impacted by the one act of each man. Go down to verse 15 and let me take you through this in a way that I hope will encourage you. You will notice several times in this passage the phrase, much more. It's in verse 9, much more. It's in verse 10, much more. It's in verse 15, much more. It's in verse 17, much more. It's in verse 20, all the more. And what that is all saying is that while Adam had... In effect, Christ had much more of an impact. That's the comparison. So let's see that comparison unfold starting in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many." The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the One, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the One, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is an amazing, powerful comparison. Paul is going to show us that one man's act can affect everyone as illustrated by Adam. What Adam did affected people disastrously. What Christ did affects them blessedly. Now Paul uses contrasts here, and they, they have some distinctions, but they're a little overlapping. I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I, I want you to see them because I want you to come to the Lord's table tonight with a rich understanding of the wondrous work that He did at the cross. The first contrast is as to the effectiveness of each man's act. The effectiveness of Adam's offense compared to the effectiveness of Christ's gift. And verse 15 lays that out. The free gift is not like the transgression. There's a great distinction. This is the first much more distinction. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The free gift is not like the transgression, meaning that the free gift that came through the death and resurrection of Christ is not like the transgression in Adam, transgression strong word, paroptima, meaning a full deviation, a trespass, an offense against God. It was a powerful thing because as a result of it, Paul says, many died, many. The many is also the all. If you go down further in the passages, you'll see in a few moments, he uses all. Here he uses many and many and later all and all in order to make his comparisons clear. As a result of Adam, many died. How many? All who were in Adam. As a result of the charisma, the grace gift, the righteous act of Christ, many received forgiveness. How many? All who were in Christ. All who were in Adam died by virtue of his deed. All who were in Christ live eternally by virtue of what Christ did. Now, how is the effectiveness of each act by one man different? Clearly, distinctively different. By the transgression of Adam, what does it say in verse 15? They died. They died. The sin of Adam killed the human race. The one sin of that first man became the ground for the death of all human beings. And we know that because everybody dies. The many in verse 15 in the comparison is the all in verse 18 where you have the condemnation of all men compared to the justification of all men. In the case of the many, it's all. And in the case of the all in verse 18, it's many. You have to nuance your understanding of those terms. But we do know that the sin of Adam killed the human race. And for the sake of analogy, Paul keeps his comparisons, many, many, all, all, even though it is in the truest sense all who died and only many who live in Christ for the sake of comparison he uses those two terms interchangeably. The parallelism here is laid out in the one statement in 1 Corinthians 15, As in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All who were in Adam died, all who were in Christ in his death were made alive. The sin of Adam polluted all his posterity in sin and guilt and ruin and judgment. The whole race represented by Adam as the head and the consequence of his sin were on all his progeny. All who were, as it were, represented by Adam. Much more, much more. Jesus Christ does much more. If the effect of Adam's sin was death, the much more is the effect of Christ's work is life. The evil gift of Adam is death. The grace gift of Christ is life. Therefore, this is much more. Christ is more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. Adam had the power to kill. Much more, Christ has the power to make alive. And Paul piles up his expressions regarding the much more in verse 15. It is much more grace of God. It is the gift of grace. It is in verse 17, again, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. This is the much more. By one man, everyone died. By one man, everyone in Christ receives eternal life. And you have to notice that at the end of verse 15, it says, this gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounds to many, abounds. He's using language here that is superlative. It's over and above. It excels. It's better than, superior than, more than. And it's a way of saying that the evil from Adam has been more than conquered, more than neutralized. It has been completely overpowered, completely canceled. In Christ, all who are His receive righteousness, holiness, reconciliation to God, and eternal life. Paul said to Timothy, and this is a way to understand it, that in the death of Christ, He abolished death and brought forth life and immortality. Sin in Adam destroyed by death. Grace in Christ blesses by life. It's destruction or blessing. It's eternal death or eternal life. Yes, the impact of one act by one person. Adam's effect can be nullified. All who are in Christ have that nullified. Christ's effect can never be nullified because He purchased for us eternal life. So the effect of what Christ has done far surpasses, far beyond the damage that Adam did. A second comparison is also one that looks at the, the actual extent of the distinctions between the two. Let me have you look at that in verse 16. The gift, that is the gift of salvation in Christ, is not like that, and here he says it again, it's not like, again, as in verse 15, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So, first of all, There is a huge distinction between an act that brings death to everyone and an act that brings life to everyone. Here he says it another way. Adam produced condemnation. Christ produced justification. That's back to verse 16. What is meant by the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Not only did Adam's act sentence us to sin and corruption, but it resulted in condemnation. But on the other hand, what Christ did resulted in justification. Condemnation is to be declared unrighteous. Justification is to be declared righteous. Condemnation came by one sin, Adam. Justification came by one Savior. You could say it this way. Condemnation came by one sin committed by Adam. Justification cancels millions of sins. The one transgression demanded the condemnation of all, nothing less. But the free gift of justification is of such massive character and nature that it operates with regard to all the sins of all those who are in Christ. One sin in Adam damns the human race. One righteous sacrifice by Christ forgives the numberless sins of all who are in Christ. Condemnation determined by one sin. Justification determined by one sacrifice for sin. Condemnation makes everyone guilty. Justification makes everyone righteous. Grace is greater than all our sin. Far greater. The damage that Adam did by one sin set loose millions and trillions of sins. But the one act of Jesus Christ covers those sins for all who are in Christ. Just think about it this way. If the whole human race suffered death because of Adam's sin, and Christ bore the wrath of God for trillions and trillions of sins, how immense! was that sacrifice? How immense was that sin-bearing? How incalculable was His suffering under the wrath of God? If just one sin was bad enough to damn the entire human race, what must be the horror of being punished for all the sins of all people who would ever believe? In one afternoon on a cross. The effectiveness of the two, Adam brought death, Christ brought life. The extent Adam brought condemnation, Jesus brought justification. Verse 17 looks at it again and says the same thing another way. If the transgression of the one brought death, death reigned through the One. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the One Jesus Christ. If the sin of one man made you a slave, the righteous act of another makes you a king. The distinction is great. If what Adam did put you in bondage to sin, what Christ did gave you a throne in His kingdom. The results of the grace, gift, and righteousness completely overpower the results of sin. Sin in Adam set us against God and death reigned over us. Righteousness in Christ set us right with God, and we reign over sin. We reign not only in the future, but we reign in life now because sin no longer has dominion over us. This shows up in another contrast, this distinction. Verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And then this, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The contrasts are between life and death and condemnation and justification, and now obedience and disobedience. Disobedience corresponds to condemnation. Obedience corresponds to justification. Adam disobeys and down comes condemnation. Christ obeys and down comes justification. One man's disobedience, one man, one man and his disobedience doesn't appear to be a mortal sin. He ate something he wasn't supposed to eat. But that was enough to make many sinners, the whole human race. On the other hand, the obedience of one, the willingness to go to the cross and be a sacrifice for sin, overpowered that disobedience. And the obedience of Christ made us righteous. Why? Because His obedience is imputed to us. We've said this through the years If you're a believer, your sin was imputed to Christ on the cross and His righteousness was imputed to you so that when God looks at you, He sees Christ. All Adam's people are marked by disobedience. All Christ's people are marked by obedience. One man Adam, one man Christ. The whole human race falls into one of those two categories. They're either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, they are dead, and they are condemned, and they are disobedient. In Christ, they are alive, and they are justified, and they are covered by the very obedience of Christ as if it was their own righteousness. There's one more contrast. And that is the contrast between law and grace in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In every case, Christ is much more. And in this case, that is equally true. The law came in. Did the law produce righteousness? No. The law came in, notice, that the transgression would increase. What is that saying? That that is saying what it says back in verse 13, until the law was in the world, sin was not imputed when there is no law. In other words, if you don't know what the commandments are, you don't know when you've transgressed them. So the law came in to increase transgression. There was transgression, all right, back in verse 14, between Adam and Moses, the time between Adam and the coming of the law. There was sin for sure. There was sin. But when the law came in, sin was clarified. Sin was crystallized. The law came in for the sole purpose of defining God's holy requirements, the law was never a tool of redemption, never a tool of salvation. In fact, look at it again, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Paul says in Romans seven, "When I saw the law of God, though it was holy, just and good, the law." Killed me. And up to that time, he was a Pharisee who thought he was pleasing God by his law-keeping. But when he saw the law of God for what it truly was, he realized that by deeds of the law, no one could be justified. Salvation is not by law or works. The law came so that transgression would increase. What do you mean to increase? Well, in two ways. One, so that we would be crystal clear as to what transgressions are. And secondly, the law not only shows us what is wrong, it actually entices us, it stimulates us, it excites us to sin. The law stirs up sin. That's how rebellious the human heart is. The law was never to impart righteousness. The law had become a tutor, Paul says to the Galatians, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You can't be justified by the law. The law was to increase the the character of sin, the reality of sin, the awareness of sin, the awareness of our propensity to sin, For us to face the fact that we are so easily excited and enticed to sin, that was the purpose of the law. Something far greater than that was what grace did. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded. Huperperisuo. It's a double compound word meaning grace went far, far, far beyond what the law did. Way, way over and above, vastly superior. The law could only increase increase sin. Grace superabundantly covered, forgave, and removed the guilt of sin. It abounded. It superabounded. The law put our depravity on display. The law stimulated sin and then doomed the sinner because the law has no power to change the heart and the sinner has no ability to keep the law perfectly. Grace in Christ puts love and holiness on display, resulting in righteousness because grace has the power to change the heart. So every way you look at it, what Christ did is much more than what Adam did. And yes, one man's act can affect many. Adams did, and so did Christ. Paul sums it up in verse, <clears throat> verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the summary. Sin and death in Adam, grace and righteousness and life in Christ. No wonder five times in this portion of Romans you see the phrase, much more, much more, much more, much more, all the more. Because the sacrifice of Christ is so infinitely superior in its impact when compared to the sin of Adam. It's stunning to think about the fact that what Adam unleashed by his sin, the massive, massive, incalculable amount of sin, is literally punished in Christ at the cross. How could he absorb so much punishment because he's an infinite person? I have no way to calculate it. But it's no small wonder that in anticipation of that, he said in the garden, let this cup pass from me. And it's no small wonder that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His one act provides grace, righteousness, and eternal life. As we come to the Lord's table, this would be a good time for you to spend a few minutes thanking the Lord in your own heart in prayer for the inconceivable sacrifice that he offered on the cross when he took the full fury of God for all the sins of his people. And Scripture says when you come to the Lord's table, you should come circumspectly, thoughtfully, recognizing all the glory of the cross, recognizing the horror of your sin, contemplating what Christ did there. Jesus said we do this in remembrance of Him. The more you know about the cross, the more there is for you to remember, and therefore the more there is for you to express gratitude for. Let's bow in prayer for a few moments. Our Father, these are staggering realities. They're true. They transcend our feeble minds to even grasp. Little wonder that we sing with all our hearts and souls as the saints have always done, to offer praise to such a God as You are who would do this for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we express the gratitude of our hearts to You for bearing our sins, for taking punishment for sins that we had not even committed because we weren't even alive. But You knew them, and You bore the punishment for them all. One act on the cross released all Your people from guilt, condemnation, eternal punishment. We rejoice in that. Help us tonight to contemplate it maybe in fresh ways that remind us of such love, such grace that must be appropriately appreciated. And the appreciation that You ask for is that we worship You and love You and serve You and obey You and do not sin against You. Oh Lord, guide us in the way of holiness that we may never be bold sinners in the face of what we know you have done on our behalf. Remind us that the sins that we are yet to commit, you suffered for. We thank you, Lord, for this gift of salvation.
4: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You.
2: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M, truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S. A-N-D-S-T-U-F-S dot C-O-M Smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
6: The Ice Age. Did this happen? This is Ken Ham, producer of the Chronological Bible Curriculum for Homeschools. Mammoths, woolly rhinos and giant glaciers all bring to mind an ice age. But did such an event really happen? Yes, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, secular scientists will tell you there have been many ice ages over Earth's history, but they don't have a mechanism to start or stop these events. The Bible's history explains why there was an ice age. During Noah's flood, There was intense volcanic activity, which warmed the waters and filled the atmosphere with ash, and it blocked the sun. The warm water quickly evaporated and fell as snow. The snow built up, forming glaciers. As the earth settled back down, these glaciers retreated to the poles, where they are now.
0: Discover more about the Ice Age, Biblical history, science, the Bible, and more at
7: AnswersRadio.com and find resources to encourage the whole family when you go to
3: AnswersRadio.com.
8: All right, here we go, kids.
9: the image of the beautiful most high God told them be
8: fruitful and multiply everything's yours but that tree do not try cause in the day you eat it you're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest yes they failed the test and ever since then the world has been a big mess so as we read the Bible it's important that we see this there's only one hero and his name is Jesus
6: Was the Ice Age? This is Ken Ham celebrating Christmas at the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Yesterday we learned that yes there was an Ice Age but only one, not many, like secular scientists suggest. But when was this Ice Age? Well it was caused by the effects of the global flood of Noah's Day. This flood occurred around 4,300 years ago so the Ice Age began relatively soon after that and lasted a few hundred years. Interestingly Job, who lived around the time of Abraham, often mentions snow, ice, and hail throughout his book. But this isn't whether he would normally see where he lived. Perhaps Job was describing the Ice Age. When we start with the history recorded in God's Word, we can explain what we see in the world.
0: Join us in northern Kentucky for our free Christmas events at the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum.
7: Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Thank you. Beautiful.
9: Think about my ups and downs All of my inconsistencies All of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cost need Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost i saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust he died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary. on Calvary As long ago as that was
7: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you
6: remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, no change. Cavemen or men who lived in caves? This is Ken Ham. of the ministry behind the popular Answers BBS curriculum. Most people think of cavemen as subhumans who bumbled about grunting and hitting things with clubs. But when we understand biblical history, we have a very different perspective on so-called cavemen. As people refilled the earth after the global flood, they met a wide variety of challenges, including an ice age caused by the effects of the flood. Trying to survive in this harsh, unstable world People did what people in challenging environments still do today. They made use of whatever they could find for food and shelter. Caves made an ideal place to set up a temporary camp. So cavemen were simply men and women just like us who lived in caves. Subscribe to receive
0: free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com
7: and listen to this program again when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
6: of migration? This is Ken Ham and we now have a video streaming platform for families, Answers TV. The Bible says that after the global flood the ark landed in the Middle East. So how do people get to the Americas or Australia? Well after the flood Noah's descendants disobeyed God so he confused their language forcing them to spread out. This got people moving. Now the flood was also followed by an ice age this dramatically lowered ocean levels, exposing land bridges, including a bridge between what's now Russia and Alaska. This allowed people to walk to the Americas. Also, island hopping may have allowed people to get to Australia, or they could have taken boats to explore the New World. Starting with the Bible's history, we can actually explain human migration.
3: Discover
0: more about creation, evolution, science, and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com
7: and listen to this program again or view a transcript when you go to
3: AnswersRadio.com.
6: Ham, enjoying Christmas lights and more at our popular Creation Museum. TV documentaries will tell you that ice cores form over hundreds of thousands of years. Each thin layer supposedly represents one winter summer cycle but during one winter there can be many cycles of melting and snowing. For example during World War II several warplanes were abandoned in Greenland. About 50 years later Researchers were astonished to find the plains buried under 250 feet of ice. Clearly more than one layer can form during one winter season. So what if these layers don't represent years but instead weather patterns from the ice age only a few thousand years ago? Ice cores don't show long ages.
0: Enjoy a garden of Life, live nativity and more during Christmas town at the
7: Creation Museum. It's free. Plan your visit to Northern Kentucky when you go to
3: answersradio.com. <gasps>
10: Andy Stanley claimed in a Christmas message that the virgin birth of Jesus really isn't all that important. If somebody can predict their own death and then their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing, and in fact, you should know this, that Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so the claim is that Christianity does not hinge on the truth of the birth of Jesus, even though it's literally the first event we read about in the New Testament. Matthew 1:22 to 23 says, Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us Just how important is the virgin birth? Well, if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that means he was conceived by the seed of man The Bible says everyone born of Adam is born under the curse of Adam, inheriting his sin nature, as in Adam all die We would not be able to call Christ sinless if he were in Adam But because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is perfect. When the angel said he will save his people from their sins, we know that's true because he was virgin-born. He is God incarnate, the pure and spotless Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Without the virgin birth, Christ's death on the cross is meaningless, and the resurrection wouldn't happen, and you would still be dead in your sins. The virgin birth is as important as his death and resurrection when we understand (laughs) fact. Let's see if
11: I can get through this list without getting totally agitated. 25 reasons Peter is not the first pope. I'm going to practice some mindfulness to call myself right now. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter is the one on whom the Church of Jesus Christ, not of Latter-day Saints, is built. Where do they get this premise? Well, it's a proved text. In Matthew chapter 16, you will recall Jesus asked his disciples, who does everybody say that I am? Now, who do you say that I am? Peter, in one of his shining moments, stepped forward and said, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then here comes the real key verse. And on this rock, I will build my church. The Roman Catholics say, clearly, Jesus was installing Peter as the first pope. The implications of this are massive, because if you and I, dear Protestant, are not submitting to the papacy, You and I don't have a very good shot of heaven because salvation is only through the Roman system, according to the Roman system. And one of its key tenets is believing that the Bishop of Rome is actually the vicar of Christ. just want to do some mindfulness today my blood pressure down. So without
10: any further ado, Freel, it's
11: too late for that. Here are 25 reasons Peter was not the first pope. This may sound like a brag, but I thought of most of these off the top of my noodle. It's not because I have a massive amount of gray matter. It's because it is so obvious. If I can come up with 25 clear reasons to say, sorry, Peter, you weren't the first pope, there are even more reasons but let's stick with 25 shall we number 25 jesus wasn't installing peter as the first papa he was clever gotta know just a wee bit of greek here peter is the greek word petrus a small stone a little rock very small rock masculine gender when we used to actually have genders and on this Rock, I will build my church, is the word boulder, Petra, a mountain peak, the feminine gender. The boulder is the confession, not Peter. So if I could paraphrase it, Jesus was saying, you're just a little tiny stone. But on this massive confession that was revealed to you by my father, I'm going to build my church on that. Jesus wasn't saying, go take over my church, Peter. He was using Peter's confession to say, I'm building my church on myself. Number 24, Jesus phrasing. It makes it really clear that he was making a contrast, a play on words besides... If Jesus were installing Peter as the pope, then he was the first person to transition by becoming a feminine gender. A more natural way for Jesus to say, hey, I'm installing you, Peter. I'm building my church on you, would have been for him to say, I'm building my church on you. But he didn't. Number 23, Jesus, who in Matthew sixteen twenty-one, just a couple of verses later, he really disses the brand new pope. He tells the disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem. This is my mission, to go and be killed for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 22, Peter, the new pope, took him aside and said, oh, no, you're not. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, behind me, vicar of Christ. No, he actually called him Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests. But on man's interest, Jesus calls Peter Satan, an offense, a scandal on, a stumbling block. That isn't the proper way to address the Holy Father. Shouldn't Jesus have known better than to call his vicar Satan? Number 22, Jesus identifies who's the greatest in the kingdom in Matthew 18. The disciples came and said, who's on the top? Of the pile. Why would they ask if they knew that Peter was the greatest in the kingdom? If, if he were the pope, he's, he's the greatest. No need to ask that question. And Jesus didn't scold them by saying, who's the greatest? I just told you Peter's the pope. Honor him. Number 21, Jesus then describes the greatest in the kingdom And it ain't the office of the papacy, 18.4. Jesus tells them, whoever humbles themselves like a child is the greatest in the kingdom. Have you seen the Pope's wardrobe? (laughs) The greatest in the kingdom is the most humble, not the most pompous. Jan Hus, one of the early martyrs, he was a Roman Catholic priest who got the gospel of grace. He had a painting in the back of his church. So he, here's the pulpit. Here's the back of the church. There was a painting of Jesus, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. On the other side was the Pope in all of his grandiosity, riding on a stallion, making the point. It's not the pompous that are exalted. It is the humble. Number 20, there was that whole denying the Lord three times business. Not very papal, not becoming of the Holy Father. Number nineteen, Paul actually rebuked Pope Peter in Galatians chapter two. Hmm. Not very honoring, Paul. Number eighteen, Peter didn't identify himself as the Pope when he called himself a bond servant and a fellow elder, Peter or anyone else in the first century never called him Holy Father or the Chief Apostle or the Bishop of—I need to breathe again— the Supreme Pastor, His Holiness, Supreme Pontiff, Father of Kings, Vicar of Christ. Oh, That is usurping glory from the one who is building his own church, number 17. Peter actually shunned the idea of receiving glory, Acts chapter 3. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety that we can heal somebody? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified the Pope? No, his servant, Jesus. Number 16, reason Peter understood who the rock is. This is 1 Peter 2. It's named after, you know, Peter. Behold, I lay in Zion. He's quoting an Old Testament text, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in that stone will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, not Peter, but Jesus. This became the very cornerstone. Peter knew who the foundation and the cornerstone was. Number 15, even if if Jesus were referring to Peter as the rock, what did Peter preach? The foundation of the church is the apostles' teaching about the Christ. It wasn't about the apostles themselves. Peter got that. Number 14, Paul confirmed. Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone, not Peter. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on Peter. No, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, Jesus is the one on whom the church is built. Number 13, Paul made it clear again who the foundation is. First Corinthians three, according to the grace of God given to me like a wise master builder I laid Peter down. No, I laid a foundation, the new pope. No, I laid a foundation, and another is building on. Be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is. No, my Roman Catholic friend, it's Jesus Christ. Number 12, Paul scolded, scorched, crushed, demolished. That's to use contemporary YouTube lingo. The Corinthians, for giving devotion to a man, and that list included Peter himself. If Peter were to receive praise, were to have his own followers, building his own church, Paul would not have admonished the Corinthians to not give any man worship. Number 11, the Old Testament. It identified the rock as divine, not human That's the sound effect for all of these verses. Listen to some select verses from just one psalm. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And who is a rock except our God? Did I mention this is the Old Testament? The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the god of my salvation now isaiah picks up on this bolder theme therefore thus says the lord god behold i'm laying in zion a stone a tested stone do you think that he was prophesying about peter a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed he who believes in peter no, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. It is impossible to imagine Isaiah had Peter in mind. He was referring to the Messiah. Number ten, the early church honored the teaching of the apostles, but not the apostles themselves. The Bible tells me so. They were continually devoting themselves to Peter and his bishops with big hats. No, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Number nine. Silence testifies. Peter wasn't a Pope. If Jesus were alluding to the Pope, it's interesting that we don't have any verses that describe or define an office that is so crucial. I'm Mike, and this is how I found the truth. All these Nor, do you see a succession plan for an unbroken chain of popes? Silence volumes. Number eight, Paul defines but two offices in the church, elders and deacons, not popes and cardinals. Number seven, Jesus considered himself the rock and his teachings, the foundation of the church. Matthew seven, this this comes before Matthew 16. Anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house, the rock. Number six, Jesus did not fight to the death against one form of legalism, the Pharisees to put another worse set of rulers, popes, in its place. Number five, every single reformer labeled the office of papacy antichrist. Luther, nothing else than the kingdom of Babylon, and of very antichrist, for who is the man of sin and the son of perdition, but he who by his teaching and his ordinances increases the sin and perdition of souls in the church while he yet sits in the church as if he were God. All these conditions have now for many ages been fulfilled by papal tyranny, and Martin Luther isn't the only one. Every single reformer believed the office of papacy was antichrist. Number four, the Puritans chimed in. They agreed with the reformers, papacy, antichrist, Baptist confession, 1689. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. See Christ, that man of sin, the son of perdition, who exalts himself in the church against Christ. Charles Spurgeon believed the office of papacy was antichrist. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and for Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of Jesus' atonement and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. Number three, just think about what. The Office of Papacy has concocted theologically indulgences, Mariology, elevating a sinful woman like Mary to near or divine status, praying to saints, asking for their help, re-sacrificing Jesus on the altar when he is summoned down by a priest so that the elements can be turned into body and blood, and he can be re And they've added books to the Bible, and they've added works to grace. Why in the world would we believe that the office of the papacy was pure all the way back to Peter if that system has concocted heresy? Number two, we're getting very close, aren't we? Jesus is not building his church on an institution that has a bloody and tawdry history. You can see our other videos on that long list. But finally, number one, the office of the papacy. What does it ultimately do? It robs Jesus of his glory, which he will not give to another. That is is twenty five reasons that Peter was not the first pope. Are there more? I'm sure there are. If you can think of one, put it down there. If you are a Roman Catholic, I would implore you, please consider the system that you are putting your trust in. Is your hope built on the foundation of a sinful man, or is it built on the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ? I encourage you I know it's hard. I know there's entanglements, family members, history, you've given money. Please consider leaving the Roman system and welcome to the gospel of grace built on Jesus Christ himself. If you love to buy one and get one free, and frankly, who of us doesn't? You'll love our year-end match-giving campaign. Every dollar you give is matched by a very generous gospel partner. Would you please consider becoming a gospel partner right
5: now? Everybody has known for a long time the training... Indigenous pastors is the best way to impact the church in another culture. It is critically important
10: that we invest
11: in training men to preach
10: the word of God. Strong pastors and strong churches impact the entire culture from the inside.
6: But if they're to be sent, they must first be
3: trained in the scripture. And that is
5: the vision of TMAI. Hey, Hollywood,
11: there are other stories to be told than superhero movies, although that does raise a question. Why do we see such a proliferation of superhero stories? While it's a diminutive term when you think about the one who is the superhero, nevertheless, I think there's something written on the heart of every human being. That knows there's a greater story, a meta narrative to the universe, and that story is, of course, about Jesus Christ, the one who rescued us and all of these Ant Man, Superman, Batman—can we still use the word man? All of them—they're dim reflections, they're knockoffs of the original meta narrative superhero story, which is about Jesus Christ. So, if you're a little up to here with all of the action movies here are 10 movies we think are actually worth watching well besides wretched and transformed and growth trip the truth season three available at wretched.org here we go 10 of our most favoritest that's right favoritest christian movies ever number 10 how could wretched not pick amazing grace hmm Would you be able to resist that temptation? This is the story about the author of Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like John Newton. It also (laughs) focuses on William Wilberforce, two Christians who worked hard to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. Why did they do this? Clearly, duh, they were both old white guys who were clearly trying to oppress people. Here would be my favorite scene. Of course. Uh, you remember this movie, the story of Corrie Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian whose family opened up their home to hide persecuted Jewish people after the Netherlands had been attacked by Nazi Germany? So Corrie and her family were caught. They were forced into a Ravensbruck concentration camp, and some of the family died. She was ultimately released undaunted. Lots of moving scenes in this rather old Christian flick, but I'll pick Energizer Ultimately, the number one longest-lasting AA battery. The courage of the women as they, like the Egyptian midwives and Rahab, protected the Jews and taught us it isn't a lie to not answer an unjust question rightly. I'm sorry, we're close until 2
3: o'clock.
11: Mr. Beaumont. I have an appointment with your sister,
3: Mr. Fogg. I need the money now. Yes, of course, I'll get it. Please, Mr. Bone. Come on, hurry. Please, Mr. Bomp. Yes, yes, in a moment. I'm just collecting it.
11: Oh, there you Timbo. Oh.
3: Timbo. Elizabeth.
11: Well done, ladies. Number eight, Martin Luther with Joseph Vines. He does a pretty fine job. You're welcome. Portraying the man who really changed the world and simultaneously sported the worst haircut ever until Billy Cyrus came along. Tons of iconic Luther scenes. Really accurate, but the scene that I would like to say is my favorite is the scene with Frederick the Wise. He was Luther's protector. Luther had been in hiding, translating the Bible into the vernacular of the peasantry, which was German, and Frederick the Wise was about to receive a copy of the Bible in his own language. Watch these hands tremble.
3: I dedicated this work to you, my lord. The translation of the New Testament into our own language. Into German? Do you think I could have my present now?
11: Take our English Bibles for granted. Uh, Number seven, the Ten Commandments, 1956. This is starting to feel a lot like math. Cecil B. DeMille, epic motion picture persuading Western civilization that Moses was actually Charlton Heston. He wasn't because they didn't have rifles in the Old Testament. Great. Mostly accurate treatment, mostly, of one of the biggest epics in the Bible, God rescuing his people. Two scenes that might surprise you. First of all, Dathan, remember that fictional rascal? It certainly seemed appropriate that the bad guy would talk like a criminal, right, see?
8: I got some important news for you, see? Moses is dead. Yeah, he's got to be. Yeah.
11: No, it wasn't an actual clip (laughs) That was Rob Schneider on SNL. You got to admit that Edward G. Robinson was maybe a wee bit miscast. My other favorite scene, Nefertari. Remember the sort of love interest of Moses? Just to get you in the mood, I'll do my impersonation of Nefertari. Moses, Moses. Oh, Moses, Moses.
3: Why, of
11: all men, did I fall in love with the Prince of Fools? Nailed it, didn't I? Number six, as long as we're thinking Charlton Heston, uh, let's talk about the epic Ben-Hur. It was actually, in 1880, one of the most influential books in history. It sold 50 million copies. It made the list of the top two dozen best-selling books of all time. And the author, Lewis Wallace, He actually became a Christian researching whether Christianity was true or not. He writes Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur, 11 Academy Awards, my favorite clip. Nope, it's not the epic scene in the Coliseum where they did the, what is is that thing called? Where they did the chariot race. Although I really love that scene. Instead, I love that they sought to not in any way, shape, or form break the second commandment of making a graven image. They wouldn't show the face of Jesus Christ.
3: Mm -hmm. You have to do whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm.
11: Number five, kind of a movie. It's a pretty short documentary. The story of two families wanting to reach unreached people in Indonesia, the Taliavo people. They make their way into the village to teach them all about Jesus. Where do they start? Of course, Genesis. Not kidding. And they taught all the way through the Old Testament into the Gospels, and they left people hanging when Jesus died on the cross and these people mourned that they had lost their hero. Some
5: refused to talk, claiming their hope had died.
3: We erected a large
5: wooden cross in the center of the village and hung a crown of thorns on it. After teaching the crucifixion, we did not meet with the teacher that night. Rather, we encouraged them to spend the evening, thinking about the
6: words they had to do. I could think
11: of nothing else. My hope was dead. However, watch how they respond when they are then told three days later that the hero has been raised from the dead. And I
10: heard that death not only. I cried. Jesus is
3: alive, is Thank you. Thank you, God. Jesus has paid my feet.
5: It was a day I'll never forget. One by one, the polyophy profession, faith in Christ. We laughed. We cried. No one thought of eating. We rejoiced in the great things that God had done.
11: Gotta love the power of the gospel. Number four, surprise
3: number three
11: And, no, I didn't pick it just because it stars the little growing pain. Fireproof, 2008, the Kendrick brothers, portraying the power of the gospel to not only save but to transform and to reconcile. And those are probably my favorite three scenes. First, Caleb gets saved.
10: She does not deserve this Dad. I am not doing it anymore. How am I supposed to show love to somebody over and over and over who constantly rejects me?
3: That's a good question.
11: Second, you got to love the apology to his wife for being a really nasty Kirk
3: Cameron. In the last few weeks, God has given me
5: a love for you that I've never had before.
1: I had asked him to forgive me. I'm hoping, I'm praying, that somehow you would be able to forgive
11: me, too. And finally, reconciliation when saved Kirk Cameron uh, discovers, oh, mom's a born-again Christian, too, and he's been treating her super rottenly.
3: Mom, I'm so sorry. Mom, I didn't know. I didn't know. It's okay. It's all right. He's remaining. I'm okay. I I love you. I love you too. Number to who?
11: This one surprised me, frankly. I thought... It would be a bit of a yawner. The nativity story, you get a really good sense of the quality of life and the struggles of living in the first century. Our Savior was born into a rough period of time, not a lot of amenities. And I was shocked when I found the birth scene to be like, (laughs) like, like I had allergies all of a sudden.
3: My boss texted to pick up these gift cards and send them the pin numbers. <laughs>
11: and finally, the number one Christian movie. This is very scientific. It is based on my own personal subjective opinion. We've got ourselves a tie. The visual Bible tackled two Gospels word for word. How can you go wrong, and how could you pick one over the other? So let's take our first bestest movie, The Gospel of John. I love Jesus doing open-air preaching, because that's what he does in John 5, all the way through chapter 10 especially when he proclaimed his deity. It is unmistakable, repeatedly making the point, I am God in the flesh. And the people knew exactly what he was not just suggesting, but clearly proclaiming. You would love me because I came from
10: God. And now I am here. I did not come on my own authority, but he sent me.
11: And just one more open air Deity proclamation for those of you who might be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. I'm telling
3: you the truth. Before
1: Abraham was born, I (laughs) am.
11: again. Jesus proclaimed his divine status. Hey, we talk about that in The Man Who Split Time, 22 Proofs, Jesus is God, available at wretched.org. The other number ones movie, The Visual Bible's presentation of Matthew verbatim, the Jesus portrayal, so warm and down-to-earth almost smiling a lot as Jesus. It's a great production, and you're probably going to recognize some of this if you watch pretty much any of our other videos. My favorite scenes, way too many to count, but I love how the humanity and downright likableness of Jesus is portrayed. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the
5: good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? (laughs) Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that?
11: How's about the tenderness of Jesus when he heals, well, pretty much everybody, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people? I also dig the scene of this simultaneously tender Jesus roaring like a lion at the Pharisees.
10: But inside, they are full of
8: greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees! First clean the inside of the cup and
3: dish, and then the outside also will be cleaned. Woe to you, teachers of the law and
11: Pharisees! And uh, finally, how can we not pick as probably the best clip of all of these? Whew, the crucifixion of our Savior. <clears throat> Tell me, what's not to love about a savior like that? There you have it, our top 10 movies. Time better spent than watching The Avengers 74. I I think that's what number they're on. Iron Man, oh, he goes to Mars. It's really gripping stuff. What I'm trying to say is these 10 Christian flicks, they'll actually edify you, making them worth your time. Do you think I missed any? Disgust. There are two things I've learned about us Christians. We love year-end giving, and we like a deal. Hey, let's put the two together. Right now we have a matching gift. Every dollar you give, it is doubled. That means your year-end giving is a good deal.
2: I got for Truth Vital Radio. Sorry about the mistakes about uh not doing a thousand times. playing the music and everything. All the mess ups, Um, but think and the V I V L E and fine now.